1: Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm not Leslie Marshall, as you might have guessed. My name is Nicholas Swapshot, and from time to time I'm allowed to stand in for Leslie when she's doing something else. And uh, we've got a lot of very good guests this afternoon, starting off with uh, one of my favorite columnists of all on Newsweek. I should say I'm the opinion editor for Newsweek, so maybe I'm slightly biased about this as I pick the stuff that goes in. But Neil Buchanan is an economist and legal scholar, a professor of law at George Washington University, and also a senior fellow at the Taxation Law and Policy Research Institute at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, he's here. He writes a couple of columns a week for, uh, well, inadvertently for me. He writes it for someone else, but I, 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 pick, I pick him up and I'm very glad to run it. Neil, welcome to uh, the show this afternoon.
2: Thank you. It's good to be back.
1: Yeah, no, so here we are. We've got a day to go before the, the very final uh debate between uh, these two great sluggers, Clinton and Trump. Uh, I don't know, you're a little younger than me, but I remember the, you know, the good old days of the televised prize fight when you, people like Muhammad Ali, or in those days Cassius Clay probably, uh, Sonny Liston, and, you know, the rumble in the jumble, and all of those extraordinary things. And it strikes me that we're, we're in this sort of perspective where, you know, we're political scientists or economists, you and me, and yet our trade has, has turned into a sort of prize fight and uh, there's more people paying attention to what's going to happen tomorrow evening on the TV than almost on any other event probably in the world tomorrow.
2: Yeah, it is sort of shocking that we've reached that point, um, especially when you consider that one of the two contenders is so completely inept at the, uh, at, at, at the the enterprise that he's engaged in. I've never seen anybody who is less capable of stringing together, well, words, much less an actual argument um, than Donald Trump. And it's reached the point now where I, I'm trying to anticipate what might happen tomorrow night, And it just could go anywhere. I mean, he you know, he could say something that's even more shocking than we've already heard so far, or he could suddenly decide that he wants to try to act like a responsible grown-up, and and we would have to see how many people would be um, thrown by that and suddenly say, oh, well, he exceeded expectations. Uh, you know, normally going into a debate, or for that matter, I am, I am old enough to remember some of those prize fights you mentioned. Some, some of them had surprising outcomes, but you at least had a basic idea of what you were going to see. Um, and I have a very good idea of what Hillary Clinton will do, except that she has to anticipate every possible thing from Trump um, and then know that no matter what she does, she's going to be second-guessed on it. Um, as she was in the second debate, when, you know, there were people complaining afterwards that she didn't deliver the death blow um, after he said what he said, uh, 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 his sort of non-apology about the uh, the horrible Billy, Billy Bush uh, Hollywood access tape. Um, you know, she basically let him dig his own grave and decided, you know, she just said, I'm going to go high when they go low. And afterwards, there were still people saying, oh, well, you know, she blew that opportunity. Um, and so, it, I mean, it must be frustrating for her to look at this and say, he could say anything. I can maintain my composure and try to deal with this in, in the best way possible, and I'll be judged negatively. But if Hillary Clinton decides to actually let her emotion show... Or, you know, simply say something like, I can't believe I'm standing next to this buffoon, which any reasonable person would have to be thinking <laughs> at that point. All of a sudden, she would surely be declared the loser of the debate. So the whole thing is, is just the most unbalanced, uneven, non-fight. Uh, you know, it, it, it it's it's just sort of hard to imagine that we've reached this point.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think actually in the second debate, she did uh, absolute hit the... Perfect note, actually, yeah, because I, if I you remember so back, and, back, yeah, back and, on back back on that Sunday,
2: to, to pick thing, pick these things over, but you know, I mean, just to give you an example, I I thought that her her answer about um, the the um, what you tell people in privately versus what you tell people publicly, um, you know, she didn't just invoke you know a good movie and and, and an important historical um, uh, uh, precedent, but. She described it well. I mean, I went back and I looked at the tape again, and, she, you know, she was uh, uh, coherent. She was not wordy. She uh, stated exactly what she wanted to say. And people were impressed that Donald Trump could say, well, Honest Dave never lied. Of course, historically, we know that that's utterly false, that uh, Honest Abe, <laughs> you know, lied all the time. That's what politicians have to do sometimes, which is exactly what the private versus public thing was about. But when she said it that way, even people on the left were saying, oh, well, that was boring. That was, you know, why, why did she invoke some movie that nobody's ever heard of? And that's why I'm, you know, I'm just thinking that, you know, I've watched her give two masterful performances in these debates so far. And, you know, and I know a little something about debating. And I'm watching this, and, and I'm just like, wow, she is great. And Trump is just, you know, uh, falling all over himself, making an idiot of himself. And, I, and you know, and I get people who are actually paid for political analysis writing these things that, that, that just make no sense whatsoever.
1: If you go back to the big picture last Sunday, mind you – I mean, sorry, the Sunday of the second debate – don't forget, this was absolutely immediately after the, uh, the sex tape, the Billy Bush sex tape came out. And it was a time when Mike Pence, we now know because it's been leaked, actually thought about withdrawing from the ticket altogether. And yeah. there, was almost, there was also a great head of steam, if you remember, that Trump should step aside in favor of Pence. So for all those reasons, I think that actually Hillary shouldn't have delivered a knockout blow. She needs Trump to be in the race because he is by far the easiest Republican to beat.
2: Absolutely, I, I I was trying to game that out at the time myself. Is would it be if if Trump were to step aside, voluntarily or otherwise, and if the Republicans tried to put um, Pence in as as the at the top of the ticket, I guess they would have had to come up with then a vice presidential candidate. Who knows what they would have done then? There are all kinds of logistics that nobody really understands in terms of. You know, which states you could have switched the names out on versus most states, I don't think you could have. but um, people would have been inundated for for a month with when you vote for Donald Trump, um, what you're actually voting for Pence. Um, and then you know, there would be this understanding. But you know, thinking through all of that, I was thinking that, and I'm agreeing with you here, um, uh, it could have gone badly. From the standpoint of, as as logistically crazy as it was, and as much of a sort of public e- education effort as the Republicans would have had had to to engage in for a month, um, they still would have been doing it from the the strengthened standpoint of we finally got rid of the, the the crazy man at the top of the ticket. So having having Trump stumble along, and and then and 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 in the time since then make it worse, right? I mean, it's gotten to the point where now you just have everybody saying you have to actually admit that you lose when you lose, right? And, and even that's um, uh, something that he can barely comprehend.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, maybe when it comes to Wednesday, she's going to have to uh, take a slightly different tack because uh, she needs to actually bruise him a little this time I think while at the same time not actually sort of tipping him over the edge uh, it's a, it, I mean, you, when you're dealing with someone who's not quite rational, it's very, very difficult to do debate prep. I mean, you're a great debater. Uh, it, it does depend, doesn't it, upon your assumption that the other side is going to play by certain rules, not hit below the belt, and also operate on a sort of rational uh, facts of facts, up is, down, up is up, down is down, you know, gravity exists and all those sorts of things. And in Trump's case, that really isn't the case.
2: Yeah, that's right. I I remember reading a long time ago that that the the greatest sword fighter in the world had nothing to fear from the second greatest sword fighter in the world, but everything to fear from somebody who's never picked up a sword before, and the idea was that when you don't know what the person uh, is capable of, they might just get one lucky swing. Um, And so, you know, Trump so far has flailed and and, and looked like an idiot. Um, But, you know, he could say something that actually throws Clinton off for, you know, it it would only take a um, five-second stumble on Clinton's part to just be repeated ad nauseum on Fox News um, for her to, you know, for, for this whole thing to change. I mean, that's how crazy this is, given everything that Trump has done wrong so far. Tomorrow's stakes are really, really high because if she, you know, if she tries to go too hard and comes across coming, uh, comes across as as being uh, 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 too mean or or too unhinged or something like that, you know, you, you know how that that could be spun, um, then then uh, you know everything could be undone in one five-second thing where she's rolling her eyes or saying, "Oh my God, I can't believe you just said that."
1: Yeah, in a way, she's sort of gone through all of those gambits, so uh, they must have been trying to work out uh, exactly how she uh, deals with... I mean, there, there, are, there are obvious questions that she can be probed on. We'll talk about that the other side of the break, which we've got to go to now. But, uh, but uh, Neil, I want to ask you all about her email problems and whether there's anything in all of these uh, leaked emails that actually would provide at least one stick with which she could be beaten over the head by Donald Trump. But first of all, we've got to go to a break.
0: Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888 6 Leslie.
1: if you've just joined us or welcome back if you've uh, been lucky enough to listen to uh, Neil Buchanan who's an economist, a legal scholar, he's a columnist on Newsweek, also, also on a great site called Dorf on Law, worth looking there too, and he's a professor of law at George Washington University, among many other uh, credits to his name. Anyway, he's a great expert on watching politics, really, and getting it right and understanding exactly what's going on. So, Neil, have you been looking at these internally tedious uh, Podesta emails and uh, how, it, how it reveals exactly the workings of a well-run... Campaign, which is yeah. be the worst charge you could level against them.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting because we've been hearing for months about how the the Russians um, and or Julian Assange were going to destroy her campaign, and uh, and so the, the, these leaks have been have been making it their way through the press. I'm actually working on a co- or finishing a column on this tomorrow that I suspect might show up on Newsweek soon. Um, but I don't have control over that. Uh, but I, uh, uh, but I, I am um, uh, concluding in that column essentially that this is a very big nothing. Um, it is amazing how how little uh, there is in there. And, and I think you know one way to put it is if you think if any of you, any of our listeners, right? If you just stop and think to yourself for a moment. If somebody could have a recording of you speaking to a friend um, or a close colleague in unguarded terms, where you don't think that you're being listened to, um, you would. Everybody, I guarantee you, you would have this moment of, oh wait a minute, that could sound bad, right? Even things that aren't bad. You just like you know that you know that you use shorthands, you you know you use sort of snarky inside jokes that other people wouldn't get, tones of voice don't get picked up. And so, you know, anybody would worry about that. And so as these things started to come out, I thought at least that would happen. But what's amazing is that despite, you know, there are a couple of examples that Republicans have tried to pick up on to to make something out of nothing. But really, the the, the professionalism of this is, is, is kind of astonishing. I mean, I you know, these are people who are in private, you know, fully professional people who are... Yeah, running through through the the, the paces of, of of a you know very well run campaign, um, and uh, I mean, in fact, I think ABC News had a, on their website um, had a headline that said something along the lines of, um, you know, leaked emails show that Clinton campaign was uh, uh, was very well prepared. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a scandal for you.
2: <laughs> right. Exactly.
1: So, so now tell me. I mean, it doesn't strike me that Trump's trying very hard at the moment. He's obviously resisting all attempts to persuade him to take the centre ground. If there's any logic about what it's doing, it seems to be to try to dispirit so many people with the electoral process, either accusing of being rigged or just bringing... Politics down into the gutter so far that people can't even bear to, you know, even hold their noses to get to the polling booths. In which case he, they might get a, if they can get out of his, if he can get his base out. He might at least, you know, do quite well. But it's not really plausible. So, do you think that actually he genuinely wants to be president of the United States, or is he preparing himself as the reports come out this week that, that he really wants to keep his tribe together and parley it into a sort of media? Uh, operation that would rival murdoch's fox news uh, and you would have i guess a lot of people that you'd be able to take by the nose and make a lot of money out of
2: yeah i i i would imagine that that is now something that his uh son-in-law and his his kids are talking to him about i can't imagine that this that this was a long game for him that he like when he started this um back, you know, in June twenty fifteen, he thought, well, I'm gonna turn this into Trump T V or or whatever they're planning to turn it into. But I agree with you that what he's doing doesn't look like somebody who's running for president. Um and and, and I mean what I find most fascinating is that this is a person, and and, and we, you know we 've now been treated to so many snippets of things that he's said over the years in his books and in, in very uh, well his ghost written books of course, but still um, his various other uh, media appearances and the thing i 've never understood is for somebody who 's such a terrible loser, right, for somebody who, who's, who, you know, every, any single hint of anything not going his way, and he's whining about it, you know, something being unfair or, you know, people are being mean to him, and, you know, why anybody like that would get into politics. Um, you know, you just can't have that kind of thin skin. I, I actually thought during the primaries, or right before the primaries, I thought that, that would, his first loss, you know because he wasn't going to win all 50 states right even so even even if he was going to do well he couldn't win all 50 and indeed he didn't i actually thought that his first loss would end his campaign that he would just sort of t- you know take his marbles and go home um you know because he's that much of a, a crybaby um so you know i was actually surprised that 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 he powered through that um, but you know at that time he could at least say well I can lose Iowa by a couple of votes, but I'm still winning, winning. Um, Now he can't even say that. He's going to lose, and he's going to lose big, and he knows it. And so now what he's doing is acting out. Um, And so I think that, that, you know, your question puts thoughts in his head that, might be there, but but you know what i 'm seeing you know and, 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 and this is just sort of me watching people uh, act i don 't have any training as a psychologist, but what i 'm seeing is somebody who doesn 't seem to have a plan, who just gets up and talks and just lets his id go wild.
1: Yeah, that seems to me the the case. It's just sort of visceral abuse by now. He's obviously doing no preparation at all. I wonder whether they even have a proper planning meeting in order to say, you know, the following three points we want to get over today. It doesn't. Look right. Like I mean, if,
2: if you it. think about um, his uh, uh, his campaign advisor Conway, um, right after the second debate, when Trump said that he, you know, that Hillary should be in prison, Conway, you know, did her job, which was essentially to say oh, he didn't mean that, you know, that th- th- this, th- this was a metaphor, you know, she had some sort of spin on it, right? The next day and for the rest of the week, Trump is saying, no, I meant that. I literally meant that. I want to put her in prison. I want her to, you know, she'd ar- she should already be in prison. Um, and so when you think about Trump then having a meeting with, with Conway or any of the other people who work for him and them saying, what's the plan for them? Yeah, to, and, you know, daring to suggest making a Plan? Forget about All it.
1: All good, Neil. Thank you so much. That's Neil Buchanan, professor of at George Washington University. Hold on. Thank you very much, Neil. We'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm sitting in for Leslie this afternoon. My name's Nicholas Wapshot, and I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek magazine. And I have—I'm very happy to say—a dear friend uh, and uh, this week, anyway, a colleague because he wrote in Newsweek magazine, uh, Sean Wilentz, who's a professor of history at Princeton and the George Henry Davis 1886 professor of American history at uh, Princeton. And uh, what he doesn't know about the history of the United States elections, presidential elections, not worth knowing. So it's a very good. To have him on. But what I want to ask you about, Sean, if I may, is you gave a talk, which we then made into a column for Newsweek about uh, where you thought Trump fitted into uh, the, the current uh, political scene, and you got abuse like, uh, well, like you've never had before. I mean, t- tell me all about exactly what happened to you.
3: It was at a, it was at a literary gathering, actually, mostly literary gathering, and, um, you know, I, I got a lot of, you know, um, bravo, cheers. But one member of the audience was very, very angry, and she got up and she stormed out. And so, you know, there was that. And then, you know, of course, once, you know, Newsweek was nice, nice enough to print it, I, I got the usual amount of, you know, hate mail and stuff. But, you know, that's par for the course. But, but it was a personal piece, and it was an angry piece. And um, I was, I, I delivered, I remember delivering it, I was feeling very emotional about it. So this is the usual detached historian's view. This is an angry historian's view.
1: Yeah, you just, uh, for those who haven't read it yet, and I do uh, rec- recommend anybody, go off and put in Sean Willent's Newsweek uh, in your Google and uh, pick it up and read it in full. But for those who, uh, who haven't had the benefit of it, Sean, just to give a summary of, of what it was you were trying to get over
3: well it's about my love for politics, American politics, and American democracy, and not in the in the sort of glittering generalities, but rather quite specific my my love of everything about the maneuvering and the you know the parties and the paraphernalia all of that, and how I feel like it's being trashed in this election by Donald Trump, and that Donald Trump has moved outside of American democratic norms, regardless of your politics. I don't care how far right or left your politics are, there's a, there, 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 there are limits, and he has trashed those limits. And I was specifically angry about the debate uh, a week ago from, you know, back Sunday, that the second debate with Hillary Clinton, in which I, I found him to be psychopathological. I mean, it was, it was crazy, that display. I said it was like, you know, watching a, a man, um, um, you know, stalking a stage at a very bad mediation session with his estranged wife. You know, and he looked like he was about to soccer at any moment as he stalked around the stage. And he was just spewing these word salads, and, and it was hateful. So basically that's what I had to say.
1: Yeah, and I think actually that the Saturday Night Live this last weekend caught that beautifully uh, with the imitation of Trump, the fake Trump, wandering around menacingly behind Hillary. She was trying to go for some rather serious points. Yes, so exactly. tell me. Exactly. So tell me. And, and I admire sorry, please. great deal.
3: I mean, America, her, her smile and so forth. I mean, say what you want about Hillary's politics. At that very moment, she stood for the democratic politics, small d, that I love. And he was trashing it, and that's what I saw
1: yeah i suppose it's uh, because we have uh, in the recent years anyway had such a polarized society between left and right to republican democrat we t- we tend to forget that actually the the foundation of our society is a pluralist view of life and that is that everything shouldn't necessarily uh, be uh, bipolar if you like it split in two scenes red and blue that there are many merging uh, threads which can appear on uh, both overlapping parties if you like whereas what Trump has done is to actually deliberately set out to hack off a very large section of the voting public and sort of own them as if run them like uh, like many of those sort of crazy uh, people in the past uh have and you know probably uh, well you know certainly more about the sort of history of these things right. if he was to set out and uh, set himself up as a media uh, t- right. mogul which uh, seems every, certainly likely just mm-hmm. to remind us how people like uh, william randolph hearst yes. operated in, in of old because he's a very similar sort of character isn't he Yes, in
3: some ways he is, and uh, there are others, Father Coughlin, I mean, all the radio priests, and, and we've seen them, you know, these sort of media stars before. I don't know how much it would last, we'll see, um, but certainly he is trying to find a way to move beyond the election and to keep this going, not only as a political thing, but as a, as a money-making thing. And let's not forget that Donald Trump likes to make money. There's a certain sham quality of the whole thing as well, which only makes it more infuriating. Yeah, because
1: it's really a circus, and what uh, you're... At, 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 the basis of what your, your rage, as far as I can understand, mm-hmm. is that, like me, you have really love politics. It's hugely enjoyable. Even it's enjoyable when talking with people you don't agree with. It's Absolutely. Enjoyable. It's, exactly. And it's – by, by the way, right now, I don't think there's anything more entertaining than reading the conservative press as they do backwards somersaults in order to try to work out what's happened yeah, to them and, yeah, and their yeah. great grand old party.
4: Yeah.
1: Uh, so, it, and, and what he's done is just to actually make, turn it into a circus, as you say. I mean, this is this is Elm Gantry. This is not uh, anything. I, I can't think of anything in the in the post-war period that gets anywhere close to it, apart from maybe the uh, the anti-communist uh, witch hunt no. of the nineteen fifties. But,
3: but you know, you know, Nicholas, I think <clears throat> in some ways it's even more sinister, um, and and it's because, as you say, he's turning it into a circus. But. What we're seeing is the degradation of democracy, really, and that's what the piece overall is about. We're seeing not only in his in claims that the system is rigged and the whole thing is a sham anyway, it's all a joke anyway, but in treating politics with the contempt that he does, in treating the entire system and in making it such a joke, Well, that lowers, um, our, our, you know, it, it, it degrades democracy. And this is precisely what people like Vladimir Putin, his great buddy, want to see happen in the world. You know, there are these authoritarians out there, and this is true 80 years ago as well, who want, who think that democracy is a lie, who think that democracy has to be degraded, and they're going to go about degrading it. And that, Trump is doing that extremely well, so that even if he loses the election, even if he loses by a landslide, there will still have been this attack, fundamental attack on democracy, which is making it into a mockery, and we have to recover from that as well.
1: Yeah, and I don't entirely blame it on Trump in as much as he's taken advantage of something that's been set up for him. He's not necessarily standing on the shoulders of giants, but he's certainly standing on the shoulders of people like uh, Rupert Murdoch. Yes. who through his Fox News, I think, cynically debased our national debate, uh, purely in order to, like Trump, make a, make a quick buck.
3: I think that's right. And Roger Ailes has a lot to answer for as well. Um, he's the genius of all this. I mean, I respect his uh, television genius. But look, it's also the entire Republican Party. And, my, and, my, yeah. and I go after them at the very, la- very end of the piece. I mean, the Republican Party has been stoking this stuff for 40 years. And and doing so quite cynically, they would ride on the back of this crazy movement, this crazy tiger, this crazy madness, and ride to power always, never with the intention of doing anything for these people, but using them and exploiting them and using them to get into power. That finally has broken down, and we have this, we're seeing it all play out now. So I, I, I hold the Republican Party as responsible as anybody else for this.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think that what uh, Trump has shown more clearly than anything else is that that sort of checklist which conservatives use in order to, that dogmatic list of things that you have to be in favor of or against in order to be a suitable conservative, which means that people like Ronald Reagan would never be a true conservative anymore, what is revealed is the fact that that checklist means absolutely nothing to a blue-collar, white, old guy out of work in Western Pennsylvania. The fact is they didn't get it right. Their, Their list of things... Things which are important to them, which include totally made up things like, you know, whether transgender people go into a male or female bathroom, for goodness sake, never, never happened. Never happened. Just like voter fraud. Never happened. So so how what they've they've done is just turn the whole they're going to have to think very clearly if they want their party back. They're going to have to have uh, an ideological sort of uh, think from the bottom up about exactly what these people, what the Trump people really need from them.
3: Yes, I mean, there's going to be a reckoning, but look, I mean, the question is, are they going to continue? Now, are they now, if Trump loses, going to try to pander to these people to bring them back into the party? Or are they going to do something else? Then there's the question of who is going to be the Republican Party. Is it going to be Cruz? Is it going to be the Bush end of things? The whole thing is is in the state of of semi-collapse, near-collapse. And it's going to be very, very interesting and somewhat dangerous to see exactly, you know, um, how, how it all turns out.
1: So um, if you were giving advice to – well, let's put it on the other way. If you were giving advice to Donald Trump tomorrow night, what would you say that he should ask Hillary Clinton that she would not be able to answer without uh, losing some points?
3: Well, I'd ask her about trade. I mean, I'd go after her on that. That's a strong point, and that's something that, that – that, I mean, I don't want to be sitting here giving Donald Trump advice, <laughs> But if he I won't take to, it, Sean. He won't take I mean, it. That's a vulnerable <laughs> place on on the issues. I would stick to the issues instead of all this craziness. But I don't. Th- I think he's beyond all of that now. I don't think there's any chance of that. If it comes up at all, it's going to be you know in a way that's hateful anyway. I think it's we, we're beyond politics. We're into psychodrama.
1: Yeah. Do I, do I, in a way, I'm, when I when you watch Trump's performance. Uh, I'm sort of impressed. He, here he is he's a seventy-year-old guy. He is uh, clinically obese. If you hadn't added <laughs> to an inch to his height, uh, yeah. which means that he's not technically obese, but he is. Uh, and uh, he's look at it. You know, look at him uh, around the neck. You know, he's yeah. he's obviously suffering from all of those things. Yeah. And yet, actually, he puts up a pretty strong performance every day. But but I'm concerned about his mental condition. It's, uh, I just wonder whether he's entirely in control of himself by now or whether actually he's just on a, such a roll, such an ego trip, that uh, he's impenetrable. That no one can actually reach him at all, including his children.
3: Well, I think, I think that you're probably right about that. But the problem about knowing about what, whether um, Donald Trump is over the top or not is that it's unclear to know what the top is. I mean... You know, what's come out about his actions with the women and so forth. I mean, yeah, what it really is about is about a narcissist, a person who, who, who cannot, you know, differentiate between himself and reality. And it was in his head so much that he, he just thinks, now, you can be a successful businessman doing all those things, sure. Can you function in life doing all those things? Sure. But it doesn't mean that you don't have a borderline personality. And, I, I mean, I'm not a clinician. I'm not going to psychoanalyze anyone. But the evidence that's out there is really pretty telling, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think that we've all met people like that before, including the boastful guy in the bar who tells you all sorts of unnecessary details about probably mythical sexual uh, experiences and so on. This is all pretty common stuff. It's just that not for a second did anybody imagine that that guy in the bar, that Mm -hmm. dirty-mouthed creep in the the corner, would be um, presidential material. And what I find shocking... Uh, But, you know, I'm a a recent American, as it were. What I find shocking about this system is that uh, we have now someone who uh, is self-evidently not suited to be president of the United States. And yet there is something like 40 percent of -hmm. the American voting public who Mm -hmm. think that he's entirely appropriate. Mm -hmm. That's more chilling to me than Trump. Trump I've come across before. But when I walk down the street and I count four out of every 10 people and I think, my goodness, they look absolutely normal.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, I mean, I used to think that there was 30 percent of the American electorate was, you know, that. Now it turns out to be 40 percent of the American electorate is that. But, um, you know, look, there are very dark strains in American politics There always have been very dark strains in American politics. Parties, when they function well, keep those dark strains, you know, at bay. I mean, they, 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 they keep them from, from taking over. The collapse of the Republican Party, and I'm talking about the moral collapse as well as the political collapse of the Republican Party, over the last 40 years gradually, has undone its role as a party, and now this stuff gets unleashed. And when it gets unleashed, it's extremely toxic, it's very difficult to get away, uh, to, get, uh, to get, rid of, it has a very long half-life, and it's very scary. That doesn't mean that it's going to prevail. What it means is that we're in a mess, and um, we have to know where to go from here, not just on November 8th, but thereafter.
1: Uh, I'm talking to Sean Wilentz, who's a professor of uh, history at Princeton and also the George Henry Davis, 1886 professor of American history at Princeton. He's also uh, a great expert on Bob Dylan, but uh, I'm not sure whether I can tempt you off onto Dylan by now. Uh, <laughs> well, I've talked about, about Bob Dylan in the last few days. But I, I know, is but you might I'm
3: delighted. It's great. It's, it's very much deserved. Hurrah, hurrah.
1: Yeah, and uh, so... W- w- what? What? Could you, could you give me one lyric that you think would it, it shows that this is a man of considerable uh, discernment? I, and uh, deserving of not, a, a literature prize.
3: Not one line, but I, you know, there's a song that I've been listening to a lot in the last week for, for very personal reasons. But it's a song that I would commend to your listeners. <clears throat> which it's a religious song, and it's it's a song called Every Grain of Sand, and I think it's one of the great religious statements in certainly in lyric poetry that I've ever read. And um, it's not any one line of it that's so beautiful. Um, go, go Google that song. It's not a well-known song of Dylan's. People don't don't always call it up. Um, I think it's I think it's a thing of uh, I think it's a magnificent thing.
1: Well, that's a great tip. Uh, so I, I certainly don't know the song myself. I thought I knew pretty much Dylan, but we're talking about dozens of albums by yeah. now. I guess it's quite difficult to keep up with them all. Uh, I, I must say that Dylan, for me anyway, I mean, I'm much the same as age as you, Sean, and uh, for me, he was an absolutely key moment of my uh, growing up, in right. the, particularly in the teen years with those early albums, yeah. and they really did something special, and they articulated... Uh, to all of us, to a whole generation, I think, uh, the uh, opportunities available to us to make the world a better place, or at least to get involved, to complain if you see something that's wrong. And uh, I guess, in a way, he's prepared us for this uh, unhappy moment.
3: Well, in some ways, that's right. I mean, the announcement came right when things were looking at their darkest, and uh, they didn't look quite so dark after that announcement.
1: Yeah. So... um, we're, we're now three weeks away almost uh, to election day mm-hmm. uh, we won 't be talking on the radio before then i don 't think no. so um, what what do you think Hillary has to do in order to ensure that she doesn't screw it do you Do you think that that WikiLeaks has anything else up their sleeve in order to we 've still got you know some October left. Is there anything that they they could possibly do by now that's not going to bore the pants off everybody
3: yeah, I mean you know if they 're going to keep on using John Podesta's emails. They're going to succeed only in getting people inside the campaign, you know, sort of miffed at each other for, you know, spreading gossip and so forth. I mean, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Um, They can try to spin it as some sort of great, you know, crime against the state. But really, I mean, if this is what they've got, then there's not much that's going to happen. It's not going to change anything. If I had to give Hillary advice, I would say that she should keep on going the way she has. Since the first debate, which is you know stick to your issues, don't get rattled, smile when you need to, and you know really stand in there for democratic values of the broadest kind against this 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 rape of democracy that's being attempted by the other side.
1: Do you think there's anything she can say to woo over moderate Republicans who just can't bear the prospect of voting? But she
2: just
3: has to be herself and say what she has to say about the issues and to stand. Uh, You know, to stand for politics, to stand for government, to stand for um, political sanity. I mean, if that doesn't bring over moderate Republicans, then nothing will. There's no one issue she can raise, I don't believe. she's just stand firm and stand the way she has. That's the way I see it.
1: Sean Willence, Professor of uh, History at Princeton, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom. Uh, We've got a little break now, but we'll be back very soon. And we've got another whole hour to come, so don't go away. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Nicholas Wapshaw, and I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek, and I'm standing in for Leslie this afternoon. And uh, I've got on the, uh, the line Bob Ney, who's a reporter for Talk Media News. And uh, we're going to talk about a couple of things uh, out of today's news. What about the, the simple choice plan for healthcare? Tell us, Bob. What, what do we know about that?
5: Well, thank you, Nicholas. Nice to talk to you. Well, We've got, we know some things. We have a brand new plan coming out. This is going to be the fourth time there's open enrollment with what we call Obamacare, the health care plan. And we know that it's going to be called uh, Simple Choice. There's a lot of complaints about the high uh, deductible, sometimes 6000 sometimes 5000 on policies. This one will be a plan, a Simple Choice plan without a deductible. Now, the part I can't tell you today, Nicholas, is the is the uh, devil of the details because they haven't designed everything yet. They don't know yet exactly how they're going to implement it, but it's going to be something in this system to try to begin to address the problem. No matter who's the next president, they're going to have to address issues with health care, insurance company involvement, et cetera. Next next president.
1: Uh, Does this mean there's going to be new legislation, or, or is it something that can be done from the existing machinery?
5: Well, Existing, having served in the Congress uh, as a Republican at the time and trying to promote private sector reform, we went nowhere with that. Prior to my entry there, Hillary went nowhere with the plan, and then President Obama comes along. Republicans tried to, quote, as you know, do away with health care. That's not going to happen, as we say in the hills, that dog ain't hunting, because uh, they're not going to be able to completely just dissolve a plan. So what I think is, it's not going to be a new plan but there's going to be tweaks to the system. And if the Republicans are controlling the House or the Senate or both, they're not going to be able to dissolve uh, the health care program. They're going to have to do something to work with the new president to change it.
1: Yeah, so what we know is that Obamacare, certainly the premiums and the co-pays and so on, have been much more expensive than some people have thought. And also there are a number of states uh, where they... uh, uh, the markets, the online marketplace for health, doesn't seem to have worked. So maybe they'll add those things in, too, in order to try to make this a going concern.
5: Well, I think you're right, Nicholas, because it's a complicated piece of the puzzle. The bottom line is it's still private sector insurance companies. I mean, everybody talks about government-run, but honestly, it's not. It's a hybrid. But at some point in time, the states will weigh in on it, and um, they're going to have to make some adjustments, and if people keep leaving the market as far as insurers, are going to have to – find a way to either lure them in or basically force them into the market, I think.
1: Okay. Well, now we've got a very short time to talk about the preparations we're within sight of, 26 mm. hours or something, or 28 mm-hmm. hours before the third and final debate in this extraordinary, uh, almost prize fight that it's become. Uh, what, what, what have you discovered, Bob?
5: Oh, it's shades of Rome, the gladiator days. I, I think Trump <laughs> is just going to go wiki-leak, wiki-leak, WikiLeak down, down the line. He's going to do that. Hillary Clinton needs to keep composure not take any bait on that, but I can't see any other way except gloves off by Donald Trump because he's, you know, not in the lead, and he's going to come out swinging, but I I do predict it'll be a WikiLeak night.
6: Thanks,
1: Bob.
0: The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people.
1: Thank you, Spencer Davis, for spotting my gender like that. Uh, My name's Nicholas Swapshot, and I'm standing in for Leslie Marshall on The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek, and I'm very glad to be able to introduce you this afternoon to one of my uh, dear colleagues and friends, Nina Burley, who's the national politics correspondent of uh, Newsweek. And uh, I'll tell you, no no better person to tell us what's going to go on uh, tomorrow night. But but first of all, Nina, uh, welcome aboard. Uh, You're in deepest Central Park, I understand.
4: I am. I've just come from interviewing Roger Stone, the uh, one of the strategists, off and on strategists, and longtime friends of Donald Trump. And um, I was crossing town to get back to a quiet place, and there's so much traffic that I just pulled over and thought, I'll just do the interview under a tree here by the lagoon.
1: (laughs) I can't think of anything nicer. Uh, Can you tell us what? Can you tell us what Mr. Stone had to tell us? Is is he does he approve of uh, Donald Trump's uh, current strategy to win the White House by um, digging down further into the mire?
4: Well, Roger Stone calls himself not a conspiracy theorist, but a conspiracyologist. He likes he says he likes to study conspiracy <laughs> theories, not necessarily um, uh, ascribe uh, to all of them, but. He is. Um, I asked him about the uh, the rigged election concept, and um, he said that he does uh, believe that it is uh, easy to uh, to um, for somebody uh, with the uh, ability to um, manipulate computers in various states. And um, so he's not so much with the Rudy Giuliani. Um point of view on this, which is rudy Rudy blames of course the inner city people and the, and, the, and the cabal of brown people in the inner city who he claims uh you know uh it, 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 perform voter fraud uh, Stone is much more of the um opinion that computers can be manipulated state by state and of course you you would you could say that this is just conspiracy theory, except that Roger Stone is one of the people who um, was involved in the Florida recount. In fact, he, he led the so-called Brooks Brothers Revolt in the Miami-Dade courthouse, which stopped the recount uh, and, and left us with um, the situation uh, of uh, Bush, Bush v. Gore, Bush uh, being elected president because the Supreme Court ruled that there would be no recount in Florida. So he knows where he, so he speaks.
1: Yeah, he's got some forum on this. Anyone involved in that uh, travesty of uh, justice, that, and also that rush to justice. It's astonishing to me that even today, the Supreme Court will not let anyone look at that judgment, nor was it considered to be a precedent, nor may, may anyone ever in perpetuity be able to get their hands on and see what the logic was of their decision to back push over Gore. What a different world, by the way, it would have been. Uh, I mean, even if, even if there had been 9-11, Uh, what a different world a Gore presidency would have been over Bush in those years. Absolutely.
4: Absolutely, Nicholas. And and as you know, one of the stories that I have uh, written that has gotten uh, the most hit in in Newsweek's online history apparently has to do with the fact that the Bush administration lost, quote-unquote, 22 million emails pertaining to the time period during which they were – uh, fabricating evidence about WMD that didn't exist in order to pr- push their case for the Iraq war. And p- people forget that that occurred. And uh, this article that I wrote, I just went back and talked to the congressional committees that investigated it at the time. The Bush administration completely stonewalled. They blew off congressional subpoenas. They got a contempt citation. They appealed it to the uh, appellate court in Washington and then ran out the clock until Obama came in. And when Obama came in, they miraculously found the 22 deleted, 22 million deleted emails, but they've been turned over to the National, uh, archive and they're under a, a security, um, clearance, uh, that, uh, it, they're, they're under, they're, they're classified for another, I think, um, 10 years. And even when they become declassified, there is no guarantee that we have the technology or will have the technology then to um, take these emails from their, their deleted mode and categorize and catalog them. So essentially they have uh they lost or threw away or erased or, or whatever you want to call it, twenty two million emails pertaining to a war that resulted in Thousands of dead Americans, tens of thousands of wounded, permanently wounded Americans, and hundreds of thousands of dead Iraqis. And it's incredible that we don't talk about, we're, we're talking about Hillary Clinton's 30,000 emails at the State Department um, and inspecting basically everything that she and her uh, campaign have ever written, thanks to WikiLeaks, and the Bush administration has gotten off scot-free yeah I guess In that's also of true
1: of, uh, of Colin Powell and Condi Rice didn 't they both have private servers too? What's more, Colin Powell deliberately deleted everything that was on his private server and you, you yeah. alone, we never hear and, about a, about and, that.
4: A, and the Bush administration also had a private server run not by their family or a fa- uh, the it person h- hired by their family but by the Republican National Committee. Can you imagine if (laughs) we've spent the last 15 months or 18 months talking about Hillary having put all of her state emails on a DNC server, private server? Can you imagine the out, the outroar, the outcry, the uproar? Uh,
1: The outrage, yeah, the outrage, indeed. Uh, By the way, I I think... One of the basic things about the email, all of the email stories about Hillary, is that uh, maybe I'm just of a certain age, but I mean, I lose emails all the time. In fact, I was invited to give a talk in about a month's time, paid employment, this is, and I couldn't find it. And it was, they'd sent it to me in March. I just couldn't remember the name of the person who did it. Maybe that's just a mislaid one. But but even when it comes to things like salary slips, it's actually very difficult to go back five years. If you do your tax and somebody says, could you just dig this out? It's getting hold of. However efficient you are at it, how getting it hold of, even knowing what you're doing. I mean, it seems that the president, in the latest uh, WikiLeaks, that the president uh, was going under a, a false name in order to stalk it. But I don't believe for a second that the president of the United States was actually tapping out his own emails. He was just saying, oh, tell her this or tell her that. Or maybe, it, was he, do you genuinely think that he was doing that, Nina? Well, that's a good
4: question. Does Obama... Um uh, sit on his BlackBerry in the middle of the night and read read Donald Trump's tweets, which you know as we know <laughs> Trump is tweeting in the middle of the night, and he is writing his own tweets. There's no doubt about that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think you you do hear that Obama loves his BlackBerry. Um, so I suppose he does send some emails on his own. I, I don't know which ones. Uh, maybe maybe when he's writing Hillary, he has somebody else writing them for him. I don't know. I actually know nothing about his email system.
1: They're going to have to be a lot more interesting, by the way, if WikiLeaks, they've got about a day, I think, to come out with something extraordinary if they want it to affect this election. Because only if Trump gets hold of something extraordinary and hits her overhead with it tomorrow are we going to see any, uh, any real breakthrough for Trump, I think. So they've got a very short time to come up with something. But I must say, having plowed myself through as many of these wretched podesta emails as, as I can get hold of, it's, I mean, it's nature's own mogadon. It's a snooze fest.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, it's definitely something to do when you have nothing else to do. And But then again, I mean, there are nuggets. There are interesting nuggets in there, let's say, for historians. Mm. If you were going to write the history of the campaign or Hillary Clinton's biography or, you know, her years as secretary of state, um, it sure makes it a lot easier for people who want to do that. But I don't really think that there is... Um, you know they haven't found the smoking gun they found of course her meetings with rich donors and the usual uh uh games that people play when they're in you know high levels of uh in uh, uh, in a cabinet the usual political games that people play and of course the conversations that were being had between the campaign strategists which I suppose, embarrass her, but actually don't show anything out of the ordinary either. So you're right. They are kind of a smooth fest. But back to WikiLeaks for a second. Having just had lunch with Roger Stone, you know, Roger's in trouble because he's apparently – he was predicting something about Podesta that then popped up in the WikiLeaks sometime after he predicted it, and he admits that he has a, quote, back-channel contact to Julian Assange, which has um, alerted the, uh, attracted the attention of uh, congressman his congressman who has referred the case to the FBI for treason. Now, the FBI said they were investigating him, but Roger insists that um, uh, it's only a back-channel contact and that he only knows in the most general sense of what's going on, and he denies that he's doing anything treasonous. But while I was talking to him, he did say, as we were leaving... Oh my goodness, there's so much going on with, with Assange. He had been getting emails while we were sitting there and um of course we did hear earlier this morning that Assange has been ejected by the Ecuadorians, I think, uh, or they have let they've let loose they've cut themselves loose of him. I'm not sure what that means exactly, but of course, uh Roger Stone saying, Well, Kerry, Secretary of State Kerry, told the Ecuadorians if they didn't get let him out put him you know put him back out where he could be caught uh that the ecuadorians would suffer in some way in terms of our aid or something but that's of course stone's conspiracy theory um on what's happening Uh, in any case there is something going on with with assange today right now as we speak i'm not sure what it is
1: this is all fascinating stuff we've got to take a break nina we're talking to nina burley newsweek's national politics correspondent and we'll be back with her after the break
0: you're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888 6 Leslie.
1: The Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Nicholas Swapshot, and I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek. And I'm sharing this segment with uh, my guest Nina Burley, who's uh, one of the top uh, political reporters in the country. She's the national politics correspondent of Newsweek, and she's just come hot from uh, the office of Roger Stone, who's one of uh, Trump's key advisers. Tell me what what is Mr. Stone like to to share a room with? See, I mean, you know, from what he says, I would have thought he's slightly unsettling.
4: Well, I've met him before. I've had a cocktail with him once and twice, and he's highly entertaining. And um he has a tattoo of Nixon on his back, which I've been um, much interested in seeing. And finally today he let me see it, and I've actually taken a picture of it, and it will accompany my story next week about my interview with him, I hope. Um, and um he is, well... Uh, you know, he's just one of those. He, when you're in this business, you you're in you know, cover politics. There's a there's a there's a a type of cat, I guess, in the game, and uh, you meet them all over the place. It's there, there's a James the James Carville type, or the uh, I used to know people that I talked to in Chicago who were like this, who just really were down in the muck with the with it, but also um, have made a uh, made it a lifetime career of uh studying um, you know how how elections are won and um, and and being in the know about the people who are in power and uh uh you know using that knowledge when you want, parsing it out to people. And so it's um, it's always fun to talk to to people like that. I don't agree with his politics uh that much. Um, uh but you know he, he he knows things and so of course we're in the business of finding things out. So it's always entertaining, and um, you know he's the guy who, for example, he gets he gets credit for uh, dropping the dime on client nine, who um, you and I know it's Governor Spitzer, who was um, uh, had to leave office after he was investigated by the FBI for um, soliciting uh, prostitutes and uh, or frequenting prostitutes. And and he gets Mr. Stone is the one who um, uh, apparently dug that scurrilous information up and handed it over to the FBI in the first place. And in fact, he told me today for the first time I didn't know this. I suppose it's known in New York political circles that Trump actually disowned him after he did that. They had been friends. They had or he had worked for Trump in the casino world, and he had he had worked for him uh, and and been a recipient of Trump's. Money when he was running Reagan's um, campaign here in New York, and uh, when when he helped take down Spitzer, um, Trump was 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 uh, angry with him, and they didn't speak for two years uh, because of that. So anyway, interesting New York state uh, political gossip uh, was shared, and uh, but we talked about Trump as well. We talked about Trump, and that's going to be in my story this week. Um, he, he shared a couple of things that I think are going to be interesting, but I'd like to save them for my story.
1: Absolutely, yeah, you must, you must Uh, but I would say to everybody who's been listening to this who's now intrigued, as I am about what you've got, uh, just keep looking at uh, newsweek.com and uh, look for the byline Nina Burley and you'll find out some fascinating stuff because you plainly go to the right places I love having people on this show who actually find stuff out, it's easy enough to find people who've got opinions, but for people who actually find out raw new information, Nina you've been uh, fascinating because you've given us such an insight Nicholas, I also have
4: opinions and I'll be happy to come on and spell. <laughs> I'm sh- <laughs> live from I'm sh- Central
1: Park. <laughs> I know we could make it a feature. It's a very good idea. I'm
4: happy to
1: do it. <laughs> okay, now tell me because we got a little bit of time left. Uh, you give advice for uh, you're in the Trump mindset because you've been spending. T- time among trump people what would you say to trump t- he should do tomorrow in order to try to change the narrative of this of this race and so that uh, mrs clinton comes out blooded uh, maybe not unbowed but at least blooded how, how can he actually lay a glove on her tomorrow because she's playing a very canny game of not get, getting drawn into his insults but uh, well yeah changes- I mean, it,
4: i'm not going to tell you that this is my idea because i don't personally have any tips for him. I'm not um rooting for him to win um but his strategist or his sometimes strategist Mr. Stone uh did answer that question um and I can share it because the debate will be over after this uh after tomorrow. He said uh that you know and I and I think it's obvious actually. not state secret that that um you know he has to not be baited. He has to be focused on whatever the message is that he wants to get out um, and be on offense rather than defense and not uh, obsessed about things like the Miss Venezuela, which, you know, she dropped on him at the end of the first debate, which enraged him so that he was sending insomniac tweets about non-existent sex tapes.
1: (laughs) Nina, this has been fascinating. I can't thank you enough for sharing all of your thoughts with us. Um, We can almost hear the bird twitching uh, going on in the background from Central Park. Thank you very much. That's Nina Burley, Newsweek's national politics correspondent. We've got a great guest coming up after the break, too. That's uh, Joe Connison, who knows more about the Clintons than anyone probably outside the Clinton family except maybe Sidney Blumenthal. Anyway, we're going to ask Joe his take on... uh, this what is turning out to be a crucial week for the history of Hillary Clinton and the Clintons altogether. to the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, my name Nicholas Wapshot, and I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek and I'm standing in for Leslie every now and again. She lets me do this, which is very kind of her. And uh, to carry on with a string of great guests, I've got someone who we've spoken to before, but uh, I'm sure you will agree that he's got interesting things always to say and that's Joe Connison, who is uh, founder and editor-in-chief of the National Memo and that's where you can read him all the time. Every now and again, if we're lucky, he allows us to run some stuff in uh, Newsweek, uh, but also also Also, which is important, he's the biographer of Bill Clinton in More Than One guise, and his latest uh, uh, account of the Clinton world is his book called Man of the World, The Further Endeavours of Bill Clinton. It's been out for about a month. It's uh, Simon & Schuster. You'll find it on Amazon. You'll find it in good bookshops and all the rest of it. Uh, So anyway, Joe, uh, welcome aboard. This is a crucial week in the terms of the history of the Clintons, isn't it?
0: In the history of the country, I would say as well isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Both.
0: I mean, uh, you know, we're now looking at Hillary Clinton uh, ahead, way ahead, as according to most polls and likely to be the first woman elected president. So in that way, I think she's going to surpass her husband uh, if that happens. It's just as as a matter of her place in history.
1: Yeah, absolutely, in, in the same way as Obama did, uh, by being the first African-American to be president. You a—you know, it's, it's a significant thing. It, 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 the world's never quite the same again when you go through those breakthroughs. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so, you know, actually, the, the second, third, fourth, fifth black or woman president is, probably more interesting in a way than purely the first person who breasted the tape. But uh, you, it's very interesting to see, to hear how confident you are about this because I always get a bit nervous. Uh, you know, I'm a, a progressive from way back like you, and I've had decades of disappointment uh, from being on the left of politics because results don't always go the way that I'd hoped they would go. But it does look like Hillary's going to be the next president. At the same time, uh, everybody has to be frightened enough to go out and vote don't they so there's sort of three weeks of uh i mean we don't want hillary too far ahead do we or is it maybe i'm just being uh well, superstitious trump, trump is trump it may be suppressing
0: his own vote when he tells people that the election is rigged i mean what <laughs> that i i you know the president uh, scolded him today in a very funny moment at his uh, press conference with the italian prime minister i don't know if you saw that but he advised trump to stop whining uh because it wasn't doing him any good, and I think he had a point there, but of course, you're also right that uh, complacency is uh is the enemy of success, and uh, one has to go and vote it's it's everybody's duty as a an American and uh, it's the only insurance we have against a, a proto fascist presidency, so yeah, you got to get out there.
1: yeah, I've just been talking to Nina Burley of uh, Newsweek. Uh, who's just Who I had think an interview?
0: Brilliant, by the way. She's so she's,
1: good. Ju- she's just had an interview with Roger Stone, and she was full of stuff. It was extraordinary. So uh, t- her story this week will certainly be uh, worth reading. But we were talking about all of these Podesta emails, and we've both read, and no doubt you will have too. It's fantastic for a biographer of the Clintons, or a, Hil- a biographer of, of Hillary, or indeed a biographer of. Uh, obama to be able to look at sort of the ins- insides of a, 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 a campaign whilst it's still running but
2: yeah i could, have what,
1: to say could, uh, if you, if you uh, found out anything scandalous that you could think could be turned into something you know tomorrow night
0: i i i don't see much that's scandalous in the wikileaks uh invasion of john podesta's uh emails except that it happened i mean uh mm-hmm. and and i have to say i find the attitude of our colleagues about this somewhat unsavory uh you know I, I heard some people from politico talking about this on the radio yesterday saying well i don't understand why anybody would compare this to watergate well the reason you would compare it to watergate is because it's uh, a burglary of of, of somebody's <laughs> private emails in order to advance a, a political objective which is evidently according to you know the director of national intelligence the Russian objective of electing Donald Trump. Now, whether it's successful or not is another matter. I mean, it seems to me that they haven't found anything that's more than kind of, you know, mundane embarrassment. But uh, I I think the bigger, so far at least, the bigger story is not what's in the emails, which is mostly boring stuff, but uh, if if titillating and sometimes embarrassing. But the fact that this was done, uh, it was done on behalf of one candidate, by WikiLeaks, an organization that's always professed to be nonpartisan and the enemy of all governments and all political parties, uh, that's now acting on behalf of the Russian state, as far as anybody can tell. So I, I think that's fairly disturbing. I understand why people like reading other people's mail. That's something that you know <laughs> human beings have enjoyed for many years. You know, the voyeurism exists in in everyone at all times. But uh, I, I find some of it disturbing. I saw one email that was published. Uh, or a few of them, were, they were published about the uh, somebody in the Clinton Foundation, somebody I know, who was going to commit suicide, and she, her life was saved by Doug Band, who was an advisor to President Clinton. Why anybody would publish that? She's still alive uh, and has children, and why somebody would publish that is a mystery to me. But it shows it bespeaks a, a lack of uh, proportion here that's that's pretty disturbing.
1: Yes, you would imagine, wouldn't you, that uh, Julian Assange uh, is a hero for people more on the left than on the right because he's so disruptive. And you'd imagine that what he's doing is offending the very people that he needs Uh, in order. I'm not quite sure there's been something going on this afternoon at the Ecuador embassy where he's been holed up for years. Uh, this afternoon. Uh, They cut off his email first. No, they cut off his Internet access first, which I guess uh, hurt him. But there's also some talk about throwing him out on his ear, too. I'm not quite sure what's going on. I don't know whether you've heard anything. Well, I
0: mean, we published a piece, as everybody did last night, about the fact that they uh, evidently cut off his Internet access, although WikiLeaks still seems to be able to use the Internet. But um, listen, I mean, Ecuador is a sovereign state. And they may have figured out all of a sudden that Hillary Clinton's going to be president. And <laughs> <laughs> and they're kind of a small country. Uh, I don't think we mean them any harm. Uh, and I I doubt, I hope that Hillary Clinton would never do anything to, you know, revenge herself on a, on a small state like Ecuador and its people. But if I were the Ecuadorian uh, government, I wouldn't be taking a lot of chances with this.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, they're, they're a very fragile economy. Uh, they're deeply divided society. Uh, the uh, president has a fragile grasp of his post. Yeah, maybe they didn't want somebody shaking the tree down below. That would be a, a, certainly a good idea. But, uh, it's hard to see the point
0: of it. I mean, at this yeah. at this stage, you know, they, if they wanted to make a point about uh, you know, sort of an anti-imperialist statement by giving Assange uh, asylum for a while and helping him out, that that's I guess that's all fine. But you know, at some point, the the uh, it's a matter of diminishing returns <laughs>
1: so yeah i mean the each, each day's new email is even more disappointing than the one before i would guess they've got at the most they've got about 20 hours to come out with a bombshell if they have one because well if you i don't actually you know, I give the club to, I, so to a, oh, right, a, Sorry,
0: a week ago or so i published this great um episode from info wars i don't know if your listeners know what info wars is but
1: Ex- explain it. I know what it
0: is, but so me. Infowars is a is a paranoid uh, internet radio show run by a extreme right wing guy named Alex Jones. I mean, he's on the sort of alt right fringe. He's not a neo Nazi, maybe, but he's pretty close. And uh, he, wildly anti Clinton. He said last week that uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are possessed by demons in the in the literal sense uh, of that so he's he's quite crazy but he was he was uh, uh the day that uh julian assange held his press conference uh uh where he was going to announce the WikiLeaks dump uh alex jones and some sidekick of his were watching it and they, it was one of the funniest tapes i've ever seen where he was so disappointed at the end that assange didn't announce anything that was damaging to clinton and uh he, he said something obscene about it. <laughs> him and Hillary Clinton, and, and that was kind of the end of the story. But it was hilarious. I mean, yes, Assange set these people up, and he, he has not produced much except, you know, kind of embarrassing stuff. Yes, so now we see the Wall Street speeches, and even that's not particularly damning. I mean, it's kind of, I don't know, uh, it's dull, as you would expect.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm talking to Joe Connison, a uh, great liberal journalist, and uh, also the author of Man of the World, The Further Endeavors of Bill Clinton. We'll uh, talk to him again uh, after this break.
6: The notion that somehow... If Mr. Trump loses Florida, it's because of those people that you have to watch out for. That is both irresponsible and, by the way, doesn't really show the kind of leadership and toughness that you'd want out of a president. you start whining before the game's even over, if, if, if whenever things are going badly for you and you lose, you start blaming somebody else then you don't have what it takes to be in this job. And so uh, I'd advise Mr. Trump to stop whining and go try to make his case to get votes. And if he got the most votes, then it would be my expectation of Hillary Clinton to offer a gracious concession speech and pledge to work with him in order to make sure that the American people benefit from an effective government. And it would be my job to welcome Mr. Trump, regardless of what he said about me or my differences with him on my opinions, and escort him over to the Capitol in which there would be a peaceful transfer of power. That's what Americans do. That's why America's already great. Now,
1: that was, of course, President Obama enjoying, I must say, he does enjoy making fun of Trump and pointing out that he's a sort of crybaby. Here he is whining but about the know- system being rigged. You
0: know, Nick, that 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 kind of talk is exactly why we will miss President Obama, or at least I will. Uh, you know, he he laid out in in a few words exactly what is wrong with Donald Trump, what's wrong with Trump talking about a rigged election and and his whining, and why it makes him so ill-suited to a position of trust in a democratic government. Uh, uh, you know, th- that really succinctly and elegantly expressed, uh, you know, the problem that we're facing now in the closing weeks of this election.
1: Yes, I agree with you entirely. Uh, It'd be very interesting to know, maybe it's worth talking about now. Uh, We're into the last few months of the Obama presidency. He's a very young man. Uh, You know what uh, Bill Clinton did when he uh, stopped being a president. So what do you think that Obama should be doing uh, in he's got you know half his life ahead of him almost so it's an astonishing position to be in and as you say brilliant uh, intelligent articulate uh, a persuader I mean a real leader so someone capable of uh, achieving at least one very big job
0: well you know I would I kind of suspect and I don't know him personally the way I know Clinton but I think Obama will want to do something that reflects the fact that he was the first African-American president. I think he cares a lot about uh, the community that he rose from. I think he will want to uh, do something more than he was able to do to advance uh, African-American interests and minority interests uh, as president. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if he found a way to take up that cause uh, as part of a broader American cause. I, I think that's how he's always seen it, and I think that is uh, one one direction that I could imagine him taking.
1: It sounds unlikely, but it's happened before. Uh, what chance do you think of the, him taking a seat on the Supreme Court?
0: You mean with President Clinton appointing him to that?
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
4: <laughs>
0: yeah, of course. <laughs> You know, I think if she appointed him, he would accept. He would, he would have to, because, you know, when he asked her to be Secretary of State, she didn't want to do it. I discussed this in, uh, in Man of the World at, at some length. Uh, she resisted that. And finally, uh, he prevailed upon her to take it, because he made it her duty to help a new president. So if a president, Hillary Clinton, said, uh, you know, president o- uh, former President Obama... I need you to stand for a seat on the Supreme Court, because I know you would be, uh, uh, you know, approved by the Senate. Your former colleagues there would have a good chance of approving you, and you're young, and you would make a great Supreme Court justice. I, whether he wanted, really wanted to do it or not, I think he would feel uh, maybe it was his duty to, to serve that way.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. He's already signaled that he's going to stay in D.C. Uh, he says it's about his children, but at the same time, you know, children are portable. Well, they are going to uh, build so his,
0: his, uh, his library in Chicago. Uh, and, mm. uh, but then again, you know, Clinton doesn't live in Little Rock where his library is. So I think you're right. He may he may well find a reason why he wants to stay in
1: Washington. Anyway, it's uh, I can think of far worse uh, people being on the Supreme Court and... He'd have a long time to sit there too. He'd make actually a very good uh, chief executive. I, I completely of I don't agree. Have to
0: say. With Nick. I think that would be a terrific appointment of hers, and would sort of uh, complete the circle of the the two rival families. You know, kind of um, coming together in 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 the pursuit of of democratic objectives.
1: Well, now you're a biographer. When was it that? Hillary and Obama kissed and made up because I don't think there's any doubt he actually has enormous fondness for her. Uh, I don't know you what know, the relationship
3: is between I him and Bill, you, but... Uh, I, don't,
0: I don't think they ever... I mean, there were bad moments in the campaign, certainly, the primary campaign of 2008. But as you you know suggest, I think he always liked her and she always liked him. The real bad blood was between uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. They never liked each other, and I'm not sure they have there's any great love to this day uh, what they did develop was a kind of respect and and uh, a, a realization of, of mutual um, you know objectives and and the ability to help each other and and that they wanted to do that but I think you're right I think Hillary uh, certainly came to like Obama a lot and and vice versa uh, I think when he said to her, he showed the respect that he did to her when he asked her to serve in his cabinet and said, basically, there's nobody else who can do this, who's ready to roll in this job the way you are. I have to focus on the economy. I need you to do this because I can turn this over to you. And uh, I think that was a a sign of great respect and and was appreciated by her. The,
1: um... I understand there was a story in Politico saying that uh, Eric Holder, the Attorney General, is going to chair a new group called the National Democratic Redistricting Committee to fight Republican gerrymandering ahead of the 2020 census round of redistricting. And that the president has said that it'll be his primary political focus once he leaves office to stop gerrymandering. That's, uh, That's very interesting because very often the gerrymandering rules were set up in the first place in a... A pathetic attempt, as it turns out, to actually uh, ensure that black people managed to get some representation. But of course, it was used for a century or more against them. Uh, but may, well, that's certainly a worthwhile thing to do because, as we know, the redistricting is entirely uh, racially determined. It's in order to ensure that uh, African Americans and, I guess, Latinos too, in many places, just don't get their say in, in who should govern them.
0: You know, uh, Nick, I think Obama proves that you don't have to be in a gerrymandered district to be elected as an African-American politician anymore. And, in fact, you know, uh, African-Americans are being dispersed more among the general population. They've moved out to the suburbs in many cases. And, uh, you know, I think he may be looking at this as a a new era. But I'll, I'll tell you this. I know that Hillary Clinton has been thinking about redistricting and gerrymandering for a long time because she told me so herself that this would be something that she would be thinking about very seriously if she got to the white house what to do as a politician about uh, the 2020 census and and its effect on uh you know not just her prospects but but uh, democratic prospects going forward
1: but would she need the house for that joe
0: well We'll see, you know, that's one way to get the House. In other words, you know, what what you have to do is go way down ballot and try to elect Democrats in state legislatures so at least you can negotiate uh, with Republicans there about how the districts are drawn in each individual state. Uh, uh, If you can't win state legislatures and and state houses, you will never be able to defeat gerrymandering uh, without, I guess, uh, you know, a constitutional amendment.
1: Yeah, I guess the Supreme Court has got uh, some work to do here, too, because uh, in the recent Texas case, it wasn't uh, particularly helpful to put it on the shelf. But I suppose in a a 4-4 Supreme Court, maybe it's not the best time to do it. Well, there's an argument,
0: uh, certainly, that gerrymandering is is a violation of of one person, one vote. And, uh, you know, if you had a progressive Supreme Court, they might look seriously at that argument.
1: Yep, it's absolutely true. Uh, Joe, I wish we could uh, spend the rest of the evening uh, sipping over a martini and chatting about the world. This is, uh, <laughs> well, we're going to do that, aren't we? <laughs> we are, we are. We promise ourselves all the time we're going to do that. Joe Collison, uh, uh not only the founder and editor of the National Memo, but also the uh, biographer in many respects of uh, different aspects of Bill Clinton. His latest one, Man of the World, the Further Endeavours of Bill Clinton, is on your bookshelves now by Simon & Schuster uh it's been a great pleasure to stand in again for leslie marshall my name is nicholas swapshot and i'm the opinion editor of newsweek and i hope that if you uh, like the sort of chat that you've heard this afternoon you'll go to newsweek.com and uh, and see what the sort of people that i've been talking to the work that they do on a daily basis to uh, to bring some interesting news to you uh thanks for having me uh, very nice to be sitting here and uh, good afternoon
6: Change is strong and you can experience it at Gold's Gym. For a limited time only, join the most supportive and dedicated community in fitness for just one dollar. Get access to the latest cardio and strength equipment, the best group exercise classes and expert personal trainers dedicated to your success. A stronger you is waiting at Gold's Gym today. Tap the banner now for a free pass. Offer ends February 29th. Valid with select new memberships at participating locations only. Commitment required, annual fee and other restrictions may apply.